0: So we've been looking at the Four Noble Truths, uh, which are foundational teaching of Buddhist psychology. And again, I use that word Buddhist psychology because that's the way I relate to these very ancient uh, teachings that have been faithfully passed down for um, thousands of years, more than 2,500 years now. It's kind of a remarkable thing. One man a long time ago, spending this time studying the mind, um, coming up with a lot of wisdom, and we're still benefiting from it now. So the four noble truths, uh, the first one is that in life, there is suffering. The second one is that there's a reason for this suffering, there are causes of it. Uh, The third is there's a way out of the suffering. And the fourth is the path is the way out. Last week, we started with the first noble truth. Um, There is suffering in this life. And I have to say, I had a conversation with my daughter a couple of days ago that really got me to thinking about the gifts of this first noble truth in a little bit of a different way. So I'm still sticking with First Noble Truth um, for for this week. And she gave me permission to share this. So we were taking apart a difficult conversation that we had both played a role in. And uh, in the midst of that, started talking about, that particular kind of rush that we people can so easily get entangled with um, out of a righteous anger. It's a rush that has a sort of energy or juice to it and in the heat of the moment can actually feel good. The problem is even if you are right, even if you are in fact, you know, factually right about what you're angry about, there is a consequence to this kind of anger um, that we have to pay in terms of of our relationship with ourselves, with others, uh, for acting out this kind of rush instead of finding a different way of communicating our needs. And then I loved what my daughter said. She said, with this dead-on realistic assessment of us people (laughs) and the way these moments typically play out, she said, but mom, who wants to think about cost when being right feels so good? (laughs) Oh, she is so right. It's so hard when there is this immediate payoff in whatever way it is, whether it's the rush of anger or the ease of staying stuck in a habit instead of having to pull out the energy to get out of the habit, any of those things. It's so hard to overcome that immediate payoff when we are getting something Um, from it, even if it's taking down our lives. That's where the first noble truth can be so helpful. Reckoning with the reality that there is suffering in our lives. And if we want to get to that path to the way out, we have to start with that first noble truth of looking clear-eyed into the suffering that is present in our lives. That's what gives us the impetus. And, you know, I don't use this word lightly, the courage uh, to own the cost of what our habits are, are extracting from us. There is this sort of short term pleasure junkie in every single one of us. It is part of our, actually, our survival makeup, um, um, and it, it very easily, our survival makeup very easily gets bent in in ways that aren't helpful, um, um, that that trigger this part of our brain, and it's really important when we think about this that we don't underestimate and. Uh, really impoverished level of payoff that our inner pleasure junkie is willing to to take. So we might have a habit that um, um, a particular way of living that's just bringing us pain all the time, but it can still feel easier to stay in the rut of the habit than to face the need and to face the pain that's being caused by the habit, face the need to change, find the energy to change. That's what these four noble truths are really all about. And, And they point to that promise of a way out. And it starts with that willingness to grapple with the truth of the first noble truth, even in the seemingly small details of our life, just like yeah, maybe I do like the rush of righteous anger, but I'm paying for it in all of these ways that are resulting in suffering in my life. And the more I'm willing to look at that cost, at the ways habit anger results in suffering, the more inspired I feel to find my way out. The flip side is if we don't take that time to um, don't make that effort to examine uh, the dukkha, the suffering in our the, the dukkha of a habit and dukkha is the old Pali word um, that the Buddha used for suffering. And I, I use that one um, because it actually means more than just our usual translation of the word suffering a whole lot more. And we talked some about that last time. Um, so, so sometimes I think it's easier to put that word in there. Um, and maybe it's not like big, massive, onerous suffering. It's just small irritation that we may not put the word suffering for, but dukkha still works for it. And it's still causing a certain kind of pain in our life. So if we don't take the time, make the effort to examine the dukkha of a habit closely, it's, it's just Painfully easy to stay stuck in the habit, to just keep plodding along without understanding how our choices are really adding up in very negative ways in our life. So, for example, um, um, my day might not really be, might, wasn't just bad because of the things that happened in my day was bad because of the myriad of choices I made in relating to the things that happened in my life. I read this beautiful story um, from Rachel Naomi Remen's book, My Grandfather's Blessing. Blessings. If you don't know that book, uh, it's just one of my all-time favorites. I keep it close. and open it up to, she's got these little vignette stories throughout and just to read a story here and there. It's really, really lovely. She um, um, worked primarily with people with cancer um, um, or around issues of of cancer. And in one of her stories, she really um, beautifully illustrates how not attending to the suffering caused by our habits can so easily add up in ways that shape our lives. So she had this one patient, um, she called him Josh, who was a very renowned cancer surgeon. Um, And he came to her because he was highly disillusioned, cynical, um, bitter about his life and thinking about early retirement. He told her, I can barely make myself get out of bed most mornings. I hear the same complaints day after day. I see the same disease over and over. I just don't care anymore. I need a new life. She shared with him a quote from Proust that goes something like this. The voyage of discovery lies not in seeking new vistas, but in having new eyes. She added that finding new eyes can actually be done in very simple ways. So she gave him an exercise to work with and this um, was one she's used many times uh, and drew from the work of Angelese Arian um, from the Fourfold Way. She suggested that he spend 15 minutes every evening writing down answers to these three questions. Three questions. What surprised me today? What moved me or touched me today? What inspired me today? Because she knew he would complain about how busy he was. Um, She told him he didn't need to write much. That more important was reliving his day from this perspective, what surprised me, what moved or touched me, what inspired me. So Josh was very dubious of this exercise and reluctantly, um, however, agreed to give it a try. A few days later, he called her up, very irritated, and said, I've done this now for three days, The answer is always the same, nothing, nothing, and nothing. I don't like to fail at things. Is there a trick? So she told him he was probably finding nothing because he was still stuck in his old way of looking at things. He was still in the rut, in the habit. And she suggested, try to look at the people that he met as if you were a novelist or a journalist, or maybe even a poet and for him to look for the stories. So apparently he sighed over the phone and said, okay. And went off with it again. So he came back for weekly visits and didn't bring up the exercise. But she could see that something was getting better um, over time. And then about six weeks later, he came back with his journal and he wanted to share with her how much of a profound difference this simple practice was um, making in his life. At the beginning, he really struggled with finding anything to write. And it made him wonder, how he could be so busy in his day and still be living such an empty life. The, the reckoning was suffering. He began to reckon with it. He slowly started to find, you know, he wasn't, he didn't like to fail at things. <laughs> so he kept at it and started to find um, answers to the questions. At first, his answers were very medical. Um, A cancer he expected to shrink may have grown. A cancer he expected to grow may have shrunk. A new experimental drug worked a certain way that surprised him. But as he kept at it, he started to hear and see people differently. Uh, And the way Rimen says, he saw people who found their way through great pain and darkness by following the thread of love. People who have sacrificed parts of their bodies to affirm the value of being alive. People found ways to triumph over pain, suffering, and even death. As he started to be moved by what he was understanding for the first time in his life as a doctor, what his patients were going through and how they were facing it, he noticed that he didn't notice it until several hours later in the, in the interaction itself, it was just like flow, flow right over him. And it wasn't until he, he pondered it later that he, he could pull out the, the nuggets that were useful. He said it was like being in one of those fairy tales, like being under a spell. I could only see life by looking backwards over my shoulder because he was um, diligent, intentional about um, bringing those moments together. He he brought that lag time closer and closer until it was, um, until he was finally able to see things at the time that they actually happened. And that capacity, he said it was a new capacity that he was building up that he never understood before. Building up that capacity changed everything for him. So he started, then the next step, he started to talk to his patients about what he was noticing in the moment of seeing them. He began to talk to them about more than cancer, more than um, the treatment. And it completely changed the quality of his interactions uh, with people he saw. For example, he saw a 38-year-old woman with ovarian cancer who had undergone major surgery followed by hard chemotherapy. In the midst of a routine follow-up visit one morning, he suddenly saw her for the first time. Her four-year-old on her lap, her six-year-old leaning against her chair. Both little girls were shiny, clean, well-fed, happy, and obviously loved. Aware of the profound suffering caused by her sort of chemotherapy, he was deeply moved by the depth of her commitment to mother her children. And for the first time, he connected it to the strength of her will to live. After they spoke about her symptoms, he commented on this. You are such a great mother to your kids. Even after all you've been through, there's something very strong in you. And I think that power could maybe heal you someday. So she smiled at him, and he realized with a shock he had never seen her smile before. And she said, thank you. That means a lot to me. After that, he started asking people what gave them strength. And what he found was even though they were talking about it in relationship to cancer, what they were naming was relevant to his own life. I love this um, comment that he made. I knew cancer very well, but I did not know people before. People started bringing him little small gifts. One brought him a stethoscope with his name engraved on it. And when he showed it to Bremens, she asked him, what do you do with that? She writes, he looked at me, puzzled for a minute, and then laughed out loud. I listen to hearts, Rachel. I listen to hearts. So she ends this story um, with this observation. Most of us lead far more meaningful lives than we know. Often finding meaning is not about doing things differently. It is about seeing familiar things in new ways. When we find new eyes, the unsuspected blessing and work that we may have done for many years can take us completely by surprise. We can see life in many ways, with the eye, with the mind, with the intuition. But perhaps it is only by those who speak the language of meaning, who have remembered how to see with the heart that life is ever deeply known or served. So I would just add one more observation to her story. The key piece in the story that would be easy to overlook and take for granted should not be taken for granted at all. It started with him seeking help for his suffering. It started because he finally woke up and was willing to look at his suffering and decide he wanted something different. That's not to be taken for granted. He could have easily just quit his job and kept the same dukkha-making habits for the rest of his life. It was that willingness to reckon with what was causing him pain that inspired him to look for a way of coming out of the rut. So keeping the first noble truth conscious in in our minds and hearts That helps us with the inspiration, the energy, the willingness that we need to put effort into finding a better way. So let's just sit for a minute. Take a moment to notice whatever is present right now for you. Not how you think it might should be, just how it is this moment now. Thank you.